Enjoy this recording taken from an unscripted live audio conversation on Mensa. That's M-E-N-T-Z-A. We are delighted to introduce Treasures at the Jaipur Court. This session is presented by ABP Live. Rajasthan has long been a dynamic cultural center and home to prestigious art forms. Vandana Bhandari is an author an academician in the area of textile on textiles of Rajasthan at the Jaipur court showcases the rich Rajasthani textile traditions patronized at Jaipur from woodblock, print and cotton embroidery to gota and intricate leheria. Cheel Stillstone is a historian with expertise in Rajput and the publishing program of the Maharaja Savai Man Singh II Museum for a decade. He is co-editor and contributor to Masterpieces at the Jaipur Court along with Nrinalini Venkateshwaran. In this book, over 40 scholars from around India and the world, including the museum team, have handpicked and written about objects that make this collection spectacular. They range from well-known examples such as the architecture of the palace and magnificent paintings to lesser-known rare and important manuscripts and books. Both join historian Reema Huja for a session on the magnificent treasures commissioned and collected over centuries by the Jaipur court. Can we have a round of applause for our panel? Uh, good morning, everyone. I think we will launch straight into this because we have a lot to talk about today. I'm even going to, uh, you know, I'm taking your introductions as read for now, and I will not be introducing my co-panelists much more. At this point, I'm going to be asking them questions where they will talk about their own work and do it. So uh, the obligatory thanks are actually thanks from the heart for uh, Teamworks to have us back in one of their sessions to Apoorva and Timmy for the venue here. And Rampatabji is right here. So missing the early sessions, but you know, we, it's all part of us. We are all part of one family. So those memories are there of sitting, not just in the Darbar Hall, but in the Betak, which was there. You know, new Betak, old Betak. Um, it is a pleasure to be talking about masterpieces because anything that gives us joy is a thing, thing of beauty is a joy forever. But it remains something of joy for generations to come. And uh, that, that is also my cue for acknowledging Giles's co-author here, or co-editor here, Mrinalini, because, because I'm wearing a masterpiece that she gave me for my birthday and said specifically to wear it for our session. And it was going to be a different time of year. But you know, something from a different part of India but yet, it's a longer tradition of weaving, of coloring, of fabrics. So my initial question is going to be to you, Vandana. And that is, what got you interested in textiles at the Jaipur court? Thank you, Reema. And a very good morning to all of you. So, you know, the textiles of Rajasthan um, at the Jaipur court came from a much earlier research uh, that I had done um, for my doctoral work. And uh, to go back in time, uh, my family belongs to Rajasthan. And I always tell people, whichever field I may have chosen, whether it was food or textiles or economics or politics, I would have always come to Rajasthan to do the study because the region is so rich and fascinating. And uh, luckily for me, I chose textiles, which is, I think, one of the richest um, uh, thing that is there about uh, uh, Rajasthan. And uh, when I did my doctoral work, which was um, um, more than three decades back, I studied the costumes of uh, women in the Thar desert region and, uh, you know, why they were different from each other, what, uh, what the symbolisms were, uh, how the textiles changed through life. And later I published that as a book on um, costumes and textiles of uh, Rajasthan. And when this book was being planned, uh, 
I remember in the middle of the afternoon, one day I got a call from uh, Chandramani Singh Ji, who was the curator at that time. And she said, uh, Vandana Ji, you have to contribute on a chapter on the Danka embroidery. So we started the conversation there and then ended up with a book on uh, textiles of Rajasthan at the court. I was going to come to that, that your earlier work would have been much more, you know, cotton, suti, that sort of material. And when you come to court material, and we've got uh, some images for, for all of you to see. Uh, this is much more maybe silks or the mixture of silk and cotton mushroom or brocade and all of that. Well, there was a lot of that, but I focused on what was being produced in Rajasthan, which has always been uh, cotton. cotton. So cotton was the base. And then on top of that, all the beautiful embroideries and the block printings and the resist dyeing was done. So most of the works featured in the book are on, uh, you know, I think they're cotton, cotton based. And because we talked those. about the techniques which were still being practiced in Rajasthan. Right. We will come back to the technique in a minute. But I want to bring Giles in on more or less the same question. So in, your, in the introduction, uh, I just want to say, I've, Giles and I have known each other from university days a long, long time ago, uh, several decades. And much to my horror, I have actually called him John in, a, in another um, <laughs> literature festival. So I might well do it now, but I think he'll understand I mean him. So Giles, you have worked on uh, Jaipur for a long time. So ever since you started your PhD work, I think you first got introduced to this material. And then you've been our director for exhibitions and publications. Yes, I, I first came to Jaipur, I think, in 1980, but um, have been engaged with the museum, as you say, as a, a sort of a consultant director uh, for the last, the last 10 years. And in that period of time, what we wanted to do was to, to start a new series of publications that, that would make the collections, the wonderful collections of the city palace accessible to a much wider public. A certain amount of research and publication had been done in an earlier period by Dr. Chandramani Singh, whom Vandana mentioned, and J.N. Bahura, who was the librarian. Um, very, very fine scholars, but they, they, were, they were writing in, the, in the, the 1970s and 80s, and our state of knowledge, and to say nothing of the state of Indian publishing, has advanced enormously since then. And so it seemed appropriate to, to produce an entirely new series of you know, big, colorful books, which were all published by, by Niyogi. And we started off with, with rather specialized ones. You know? So we've taken an area of the collection, like Arms and Armor, or uh, there's another one on textiles, not of Rajasthan, but textiles from, from, from elsewhere. We did one on painting and photography in c connection with the gallery that, that we were opening. And so these are um, substantial books focusing on, on one part of the collection. And, in, and Vanden is, 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 is a similar idea. You know, we thought, let, let's have one that focuses specifically on textiles made in Rajasthan and, and the role of the court as a patron of Rajasthani textile techniques. But at the same time that, that, that Vandana was working on hers, Mrinalini and I said, well, look, you know, a lot of museums around the world um, produce a book of their great masterpieces, you know, their, their, their favorite items. Why don't we do that? Instead of having, you know, because not everybody wants to buy a 300-page book on arms and armor, but you know, people might be interested to see just the highlights across the whole collection. And so Masterpieces at the Jaipur Court is, is different from the previous, it's a much handier book for one thing, it's a sort of slim paperback. Um, and the idea is that any visitor might, you know, who's interested just in knowing what are the kind of 75 or se there are 76 entries actually, you know, highlights of the City Palace collection across the whole board. So including um, arms and armor and textiles. There are some repeats indeed, including paintings and photography, but also other things that we hadn't looked at in detail um, in earlier publications like um, the manuscripts, like the maps, um, and indeed the buildings of the city palace are also masterpieces. So it's a slightly different conception. That's, that's the conception of this book. And this is number six in the new series? Yes, this is number six. And we have talked about uh, the, all the others, uh, other than Vandanaji's book. We launched, we launched three of them at the festival at the in two, 2016, I think. Uh, at some point, yes, <laughs> if you remember it. So, so masterpieces has, um, I was doing a kind of a count. 76 objects, over 40, you said, I think it's about 48 people writing on them. And that's only the tip of the iceberg? Well, that's the other, the other twist in this book, is that in most museums, when they do their 
masterpieces volume is, is written in-house, is written by the curatorial team. But we benefit hugely from visiting scholars from India and around the world who come and look at things. Um, and so it was Mrananda's idea, actually. She said, instead of writing it all ourselves, we'll, we'll each write a bit, you know, we'll each do our own entries. Everyone on the museum team, from the director to the assistant curators, have all contributed pieces. But um, most of them are written by 36 visiting scholars. And we, what we, we, we wrote to them, these were all people who had been to the museum, looked at parts of the collection in pursuit of their own research. So we wrote back to them and said, can you choose one or two of your favorite things and tell us why they're masterpieces? And so you get a real depth of, of, of scholarship and expertise as a result in, in this book. Don't let that put you off, because they were also under strict instructions to write as if they were writing for a non-specialist audience. But you know, a sort of 800-word entry, 500, 500 words with, um, with limits, you know, to 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 each object. Um, but I'll tell you more about the contributors. Yes, shortly. because I want to come back to Vandana now. Uh, you have an entry in this as well. Yes, I so do. So <laughs> what did you? I mean, for, for I know what you have because I've seen it. <laughs> Just like I had your book of textiles sitting on my desk uh, as long as you've had it. Uh, but what did you pick for this and why? So I chose uh, two techniques. Uh, one I chose because I wasn't using it in my uh, textiles of Rajasthan book because it isn't from the region. But there is a lot of that uh, done at the, at the court. Um, Which, uh, what is that So technique? it was the Pilla embroidery and I chose... Uh, this was the piece. So a very beautiful uh, velvet angarkha and uh, embroidered in, uh, uh, with gold tilla. And that, that I believe was uh, embroidered in uh, Kashmir. And um, uh, we couldn't use it in, in the other book because um, this, this isn't practiced in Rajasthan. And the second technique, um, so I focused on the technique, was on, um, I used a tie-dyed, uh, um, uh, you know, bandhani ghagra, so the panel skirt, and uh, which had also the gota embroidery, which Rajasthan is so popular for. And this was quite unusual because most of the ghagras that were worn at the court were in satin silk and they were plain and then they would be embellished with Khagra. But this was a, just a gorgeous piece uh, in a black color with an orange border and then it had the golden, um, you know, the tape all around it, the gota, and it, it looked beautiful and I thought it deserved to be in the masterpieces. I was looking to see if we had put it in the loop. I it's it's, it's on the next one. What you're seeing on the screen at the moment in, in a loop are images from Vandana's book um, in a while um, we'll change it to a loop of, of images from here, and it includes her Gagra. And I'm also going to come in at this point because we are we are talking about the Jaipur court and the masterpieces and textiles are part of that. But uh, just to have everyone in on the same frame, we assume it's Jaipur. I work in Jaipur. They worked on the Jaipur collection. Uh, but let's bring the Jaipur history a little bit back into it. And when we are saying the Jaipur court. What we have now in our collection at the City Palace Museum at the Maharaja Savai Man Singh Second Museum City Palace is mostly material from the 17th century onwards, from the 18th century onwards, which is from the time that the city of Jaipur was built in 1727. But of course, Jaipur doesn't just come out of the blue. There's a longer tradition. Jaipur is the capital of a state. Uh, most of you know this, but as I said, no harm in recapping it. Um, of the kingdom of Dundar, and the older capital was Amir. And of course, there's a capital before that also, but that takes us further back in time, subject for another session maybe. And Amir was also a period where there was a rich collection made, some of which over time has been brought into the Jaipur collection, some of which was also gifted away. And that again is a different a topic to talk about, how prized items are acquired, and gifted, and you know, both of you are welcome to come in on that point at, at, uh, as we go on with the conversation. But um, when you talked about the Tilla work on Maharaja Savai Ram Singh II's Agarkha, uh, and I think you meant him, and, and it's Tilla work from Kashmir. So there was a lot of contact of each part of India with other parts of India, with other parts of the subcontinent through trade, through their own travels, and the Jaipur or the Jaipur Amir or the Dhunda rulers did a lot of that, all the way from 
Kabul and Kandahar from where the current, um, where the flag up till 1949 when the state of Jaipur merged, those colors come from the, the um, Kabilas uh, that were Kabyli groups that were defeated in Afghanistan to the Mangladhar, you know, we talked about architecture. So some of the architectural features coming in from Bengal and from Orissa. This give and take is something that we need to understand. Um, and I don't want to make it into a class, but that is part of the way the world was. And yesterday there was a fascinating uh, session in which a carnelian bead from the Gulf of Kambat, Kambay, was found in an excavated uh, uh, you know, burial mound in the middle of UK. And that was 8th century or something. So the world had their ways of traveling. So we say, let's get back to the world now. This I just wanted to kind of the school teacher in me or the university teacher in me can't resist this. So let's get back to this. Well, I can give you an example of that. Yes. So um, it, as Rima suggested, in, in, in some ways, the collection of the City Palace is, is fairly homogeneous. It's all courtly material. It's mostly from the 18th to the 20th century, though, as she says, there is some earlier material as well. But in spite of that, the, the, the nature of modern scholarship is that we all tend to be pretty much specialists. Um, and so even within the... Um, the collections of the city palace, there's, there's a, there is a diversity, there's, there's too much that for one person to, uh, to understand, or even for people on the team to understand collectively. And that's where the visiting scholars help us so much and teach us a lot about the collection. I want to give you a, a couple of examples of, of, of how this works. So a few years ago, it was actually during a, a, a JLF, um, Supriya Gandhi from Yale University was, was here. Um, she was just finishing up her book on Dara Shikoh. And a colleague of mine, in the, a colleague of ours in the museum, said, oh, look, we've got a portrait of Dara Shikoh um, from a, a mogul Maraka. Come and see it. So she did. She came to the museum and she, she came and looked at it. And I have to admit, I don't think she was over-impressed by the, by the portrait. But as she turned it over, she started to read the Persian calligraphy um, on the reverse. And she suddenly stopped and she said, do you know what this is? And we said, well, actually, no, to be honest, no, none of us read Persian. And she said, well, have you got the page before and after? And so we said, yes. And she said, well, actually, it's an extract from the Risala is Sahibir, which is a spiritual memoir written by Jahanara, the daughter of Shah Jahan. And um, it's a very important text in itself because what she's doing is she's, she's talking about her, her feelings about her Sufi preceptor, um, a, a spiritual guide that she shared with her brother, um, Dara Shikho. Um, and what Supriya said is, we, I, I know this text, I can recognize it, because there's a modern edition. But that modern edition is based on a manuscript that was in a collection at Ahmedabad, and it's disappeared. So you've got one of the very few surviving copies of this incredibly important manuscript. And that was, you know, a kind of wow moment for us, because you know, none of us knew that we had this thing. Meanwhile, in the library, Jim Mallinson from SOAS had also wandered in from the JLF, and uh, he said, can I just glance through your catalogue of Sanskrit manuscripts in case there's anything that catches my eye? And there was. He said, there's this thing here. And if it, if it is what it says it is, it would be very interesting because you've got a thing which says it's called the Yoga Bhaskara. Can I see it? So we went and got it out. And he looked at it and he said, yeah. The thing about this is, anyway, Jim Manson, you may know, is a, is a Sanskritist. He's a yoga specialist. He says, you know, anyone in yoga studies has heard of the Yoga Bhaskara but nobody's seen it. The reason that we've all heard of it is that the title is referred to in many, many, many other medieval manuscripts, but no one's ever found it until now. So again, this kind of incredible wow moment. We didn't know that we'd, we'd got this thing. But my point here, which comes back to Rima's rambling introduction, <laughs> is you take them in, in isolation, those two incidents, and we've just, you know, found out something about things in our collection that we didn't know. Put them together, and you find out something about Jaipur, which is really, really interesting to me, because that's my focus, as it were. The fact that Sawajai Singh had collected a Vaishnavite manuscript in Sanskrit on an esoteric aspect of yoga, not hugely surprising, perhaps. Um, you know, it's, that's part of the worldview of the Jaipur court. But the fact that at the very same time, He's collecting a spiritual memoir written by Jahanara, shows how he connects up also with this kind of larger Persian world. Because, of course, um, Jaipur Amma was a very important 
semi-autonomous state within the Mughal Empire. And it shows the two ways in which um, the court was always capable of, of, of looking. And there are many other juxtapositions that I could make. Right. Along Can I just uh, come Definitely. back to something you said on uh, gift giving? And uh, Giles said that you know most of the collection is a royal collection. And uh, while I was studying the, the textiles at the court, and I use that in my book also, we found a large collection of um, cotton block printed textiles, which are called the namdharis because they they talk they you know the symbols and uh, uh, writings like Ram and Om and Shiv uh, and the symbols like the uh, the Trishul are printed on them. And I was very intrigued. I was like, what are, why does the Jaipur court have such a large collection of very uh, simple malmal uh, -mal, uh, block printed textiles, beautifully printed, uh, amazing to look at and very well put together. But, uh, you know, along with the velvets and the silks and the brocades and the fine uh, um, bandhani textiles, the lehriyas, the varak prints, why were these kept? And uh, through the study, I learned that... Uh, Every time the king had a, um, a, you know, a birthday or there was a festival that was celebrated, uh, these were gifted to the saints in the region. And then they all came back in the collection in some way. Uh, and they were bought from the... F uh, they were because they were created for the gods and for special occasions, uh, which were religious in nature, they were very, very finely printed, and it's said that when the block printer actually made them, he went almost into a trance, and he just kept singing those hymns and those bhajans as he was printing. So it was as were he were putting his religious fervor into those textiles and then bringing it to the king as an uh, as a offering. So a very beautiful collection of the Namdhari textiles, Namwali or the Namdhari textiles. Namwali. Namavali. Yeah. Namavali. Uh, Namavali. Subject yeah. for another book, would you do it? I would do it in a flash. <laughs> made in public. We, we'll, we'll shake hands on it in, in a minute after yes. this. But uh, staying with that, can you also, uh, like, you know, there's so many other technologies now. Can you actually look at some of this? and be able to tell where the cotton is coming from. You definitely can tell where it was printed because that's your forte, it's not mine. Uh, is, that, is that something that you would be doing, could, could do? I think that might be hard, but it would be regional I, because uh, you know, we do know that right uh, near Ajmer in Vijayanagar was the cotton mandi, you know, where the cotton trade was happening. And uh, uh, um, my father comes from a village very close to that. And that's something I always want to go back in history and study. Because right there, I remember when I was a child, uh, you know, my uh, elder uncle used to say, t tell us that, the, the, you know, the, in bullock carts, the cotton trading was done here. Uh, so we don't know where the cotton was coming from, possibly from Gujarat or Maharashtra. But we do know that the, the trading was being done here. And, uh, you know, to reference the conversation I was having with Prima yesterday again, uh, this was part of the silk route and uh, going right into Shekhawati and going into small streams. If you look at the details of the silk route, again, a subject for study. I think uh, if there are some young scholars, they should take this up and study how in Shekhawati, in each of the Havelis, they have these old textiles and... Uh, Possibly from there, these big houses, they, they moved to Calcutta because Calcutta was a, a port and then they established businesses there. And that's why we find people of all the big Marwari homes. Uh, they have one leg in uh, Calcutta and they have their old Havelis here. So it possibly started here. The trade started from well, here. You, you mentioned the Silk Route. We won't focus too much more on that now because of time. But in the 9th century, in the 9th and 10th century, we have an inscription which, or more than one inscription, pointing to the fact that Pali was a big trade center where Kinkhwab, which is velvet, was coming in from Chin, China, and uh, red sandalwood from the Karnataka area, you know, uh, material from Lat, which is Gujarat. Uh, I think we always think of Rajasthan, you know, the desert, we're on the fringes of something. No one is on the fringes of anything. Your own life is central to the world around you. And you brought that in. And I want to now come back to Giles with our life at the museum being, you know, central to sitting with all this 
these masterpieces around us. I noticed that on the loop, we are having some of the masterpieces being shown. Yes, that's, so, that's, 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 that's one here. One is something there. to share on yes. manuscripts. Well, yes, particularly I, I, this, in this collection, as I say, because in the earlier volumes, we'd, we'd focused on arms and armor and on textiles, again on textiles with Vandana, um, we have got quite a number of entries on, on the manuscripts collection. Um, I want to just mention two others which make a similar point to my previous one. So one of them is a, a much-loved manuscript that we uh, called, we always refer to it as the Chue Nama. It's, it's, the, it's, a, it's, it's, it's really the Mush Urgorbe. It's, it, the, the, the text, it's a, it's a Persian text written uh, a 14th century um, Persian text, though this is a, an early 18th century copy. And the, it's, it's very, very profusely illustrated. And we call it the Chue Nama because it's, it's, a, it's a satirical story of a, a tyrannical cat that, that tyrannizes a colony of mice. And in the original story, um, version of the story, um, the, 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 the cat triumphs. I mean, it becomes you know, the, the ruling tyrant. In the Jaipur version, um, the, the mice overcome the cat and, and put it on trial and they then have the agonizing question of whether they can, they can put it to death and they eventually decide they can because the cat's a bad Muslim. Um, anyway, this text was looked at for us by, by Vivek Gupta. He wrote the, 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 the entry um, in the book. I mean, it's, it's a well-known manuscript. Others, other scholars have looked at it. But Vivek had an interesting insight because he said, you know, why is it here? And he realized that essentially it's a children's story. And he, what he hypothesizes is that it was acquired at the Jaipur court in order to teach a young Rajput noble Persian. Otherwise, you know, why, why would it be in this collection rather than in some other? And the juxtaposition I want to make is with a, a manuscript that has just flashed past, which is um, the, the Prussian Taravali. Um, this was uh, it's a very beautiful um, manuscript in, in, in it's Sanskrit in, in three colors. That's the Mushul Gobe. Um, so this, this other manuscript, the, the Prussian Taravali, was looked at for us by Audrey Trushke. And what she says is, well, the, the, the text itself, the substance of the text is well known. It's, it, we're going back to the world of Dara Shikoh. It's, it's Again, it's a spiritual treatise. It's an account of an encounter between Dara Shikoh and Babalal Dayal. And she says, you know, the material, the substance of this text is very well known. But that's because there are many other versions of it, all in Persian. Yours is in Sanskrit. So again, you have this sort of collision of two language worlds, you know, a Persian text here to teach a Rajput noble Persian and a, and a text that would normally be in Persian rendered into Sanskrit for the, for the benefit of people in the court. And I, th I think that's, that's the extraordinary power of this collection, these kinds of juxtapositions of, 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 of worlds. Let's stay with that for a minute. Uh, who is acquiring what and why? Well, you, you, can, you can speculate. So let's, let's think about the maps. Some of the maps are on, 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 on the loop. Again, there are a number of spectacular maps, some of which are on display. We have an enormous map of the city of Surat. Um, made, and the, the entry on that is written by Manoshi Lahiri, a very distinguished geographer. Um, and she was able to work out, because the, the foreign factories are shown, and they're identified by their flags, and by the particular combination you've got, she says, oh, this must have been made around 1700. And also the second city wall is in situ, and that was built during the reign of Aurangzeb. Um, so it's a huge cloth. Why is it here? Well, is it that Sawajai Singh, when planning his new city, is collecting material that might help him, might inspire him? Because when we were writing the caption, we thought, what are we going to say about this? Well, Surat is, is an important trading city, and it's on a river. You know, and we thought, hang on a minute. Um, Jaipur is an important trading city, and it's a planned city, also like Surat was originally. You know, so it's not that Jaipur. I'm not saying Jaipur is inspired by Surat. I'm saying that he's collecting material in order to help figure out um, how he's going to how he's going to do it. And that that hangs opposite two other maps, which are very interesting. One is um, my favourite map in the collection because it's a map of Jaipur, and it's actually, according to me, the earliest map of Jaipur. It shows the completed city in you know, with obviously nothing outside the city wall. I mean, it's made, I think, about 1735 when the city was officially declared the capital. Um, and it shows the, the, the built city. It's a rather idealized map because it shows the city complete, which it wasn't um, in... Um, so in, so uh, Jaipur seems to have a lot of maps. I mean, I think Jessing was deliberately collecting maps. Every ruler would have had their own particular interest, but they would also have been gifted things. We've got a map of Agra. 
We have We've the very famous one, Mapo Agra, which, which was, has been studied by Ebba Koch and is the basis of her work. It's, it's in the book as well. Ebba's written the entry. So it's, it's, it's a, a map of Agra that was made on commission by Sawai Jai Singh when he was the governor of Agra. Um, and, but it's, it's interesting to Ebba because it shows all of the original riverside gardens with the names of the owners as they, as they were in the 1720s. So an incredibly important historical document. Can I just mention one other Mughal-related map because it, it shows a different kind of process. We have an extraordinarily detailed, measured plan of the Lal Kila in Delhi. Again, the entry on that in this book was written um, by Abhishek Keka. Um, and what's interesting about it is, that I, as soon as I looked at it, I've, I've looked at a lot of the, the maps in the collection, which are maps of Jaipur. And I could tell just by the paper, the inks, the style in which the, the graph paper has been drawn up, that this is a Jaipur product. Furthermore, all of the inscriptions are in Devanagari. It's not a Mughal object. It's a Raj Rajasthani object, but it's a highly detailed, measured plan of the Lal Kila, which shows you the extraordinary proximity that Sawajai Singh had to the court of Muhammad Shah, that he's, he's able to send a draftsman in to make such an object, and the, the interest that Sawajai Singh has in, in, in commissioning it. Uh, just to add there, that the map of Surat also has Devanagari inscriptions. So, uh, uh, yes, and Persian. Because, but then Persian also was, you can consider, almost a, a Jaipur court uh, language at the, of that time. Uh, we, we have so many maps which are called Taras, including local ones, including ones which are showing from where water is coming to the city of Jaipur, you know, measured drawings almost that architects would be interested in. But let's move away from maps for a minute, much as, uh, you know, we would love to, to wobble on about them. And I want to talk about who's acquiring what. But also, you, we were talking about textiles. Uh, what fascinates me is I'm using this term of textiles and taxes. You talked about how sometimes exquisite pieces were given uh, because the tax on it could not be paid. Do you want to share that with the audience? Yes, of course. So, you know, um, the textiles that were produced uh, by the artisans were extremely fine. And a lot of them were produced for trade. And at the city palace and in the book, I use examples of some of those which have uh, octroi stamps and uh, tax stamps on them. And which really means that when they were leaving the city of Sanganer where the printing was being done, they were taxed and a high amount of tax was being um, charged for these exquisite textiles. And uh, the royalty always wanted uh, to have beautiful pieces. You know, they wanted, they, they coveted almost the finest uh, textiles that were being produced. So, um, uh, Sometimes people just didn't have the money to pay the taxes. They could produce the textiles, but they, they didn't have the income on it to pay the taxes. And these would then be gifted to the court. And we have many examples of fine rumals and uh, other textile pieces with the octroi stamps, which also dates these textiles. So textiles were also used, uh, so to speak, as currency at that point of time and the rulers accepted it right so thank you for that bit because i hadn't realized that that was also happening you know i thought taxes textiles okay makes a nice title for a book but um we do have a lot more to say and share on our uh, masterpieces and i'm not ending it just now but i was just wondering if we can go in for about five minutes of question answer at this point and uh, give you the last word you know have you the, the opportunity of saying a little more because I want to ask you about what next and, and I want to admit that I am the reluctant uh, I'm not the reluctant custodian as being the director I'm the reluctant museologist museumologist museologist sitting there uh, I always said it wasn't my line and I'm admitting it uh, that I've been scolded on it for by my many colleagues uh, we will come back to the treasures and the masterpieces and what more we can do with them but I saw there was a hand there, so could we have the mic? Uh, we, we, please identify yourselves. Can you get to that? Um, who's got the mic? Or are we just speaking aloud? Yeah. Okay. Question, please, rather Question. than a comment. And if it's addressed to someone in particular. We will okay, need the Chalo. mic. Yeah, it's fine. So um, the question is, uh, obviously, the treasures of the Jaipur court 
uh, relate to a, the period which uh, precedes the city of Jaipur being formed and so forth. Are there, uh, and that uh, Rimaji, you could also comment on, and Giles too, uh, any artifacts or treasures which relate to the pre, uh, the period before the Shekhawats uh, sort of captured Amer and, and made it their own? Are there any tribal artifacts or uh, things like that available in your uh, collection uh, or in your knowledge? We, we have a, a few bits and pieces. I mean, there are some, there's not a lot of very ancient stuff. I, I, we included, there's one sculpture which came from Abeneri that Rima herself wrote the, the entry in, and that's on, on the loop tape. Um, no, we don't have a lot of, um, of, of material that early. We do have a number of mogul things because, of course, acquiring mogul works um, was one of the activities of, 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 of a Rajput court. And actually, I want to kind of steer a question, if I may, two seats away from you is Dr. Ursula Weeks, who's, who's one of our visiting scholars. And perhaps you could, as it were, narrate what it, what it was that brought you and, and, and the, the discovery you made for us, which is, is, is also explained Ursula in the book. Ursula also is a contributor to this, as Jai yes. said. Thank you so much for this session. I, I actually have one... Um, uncontroversial question to ask you, which is, um, I think that drawing together scholars seems like a whole new methodology of how museums can do masterpieces books. And I wondered whether how you think that can be uh, sort of escalated, replicated in other collections and the value of that. Um, I, I, came to, I came to the Jaipur City Palace particularly hoping to study mogul works. And of course, the greatest hidden masterpieces in the collection in some ways, this is the more controversial question, do still remain hidden because they're the Akbar um, manuscripts of the Ramayan and the Razamnama, which as I understand, were uh, placed into the collection of the City Palace Museum, but because of their location um, and their storage actually remain sort of caught up in this legal issue and, and haven't been accessible to scholars um, for a long time. So I was wondering if you could comment a little bit on, on how this great aspect of cultural heritage might possibly be, become more accessible to scholars. Um, but yes, in my own studies, then looking at Mughal paintings, I found a beautiful painting that was um, of Humayun in a landscape, and it has a little inscription on it that says it's Babo. It's a painting that comes from the Shah Jahan period, um, and that's what I talk about in in your wonderful book. Thank you. I didn't have to address your your, your controversial question. It's say yes, of course, it's to the regret, regret of all of us and beyond. I'm afraid our power as as um, you know, employees of the of the museum to solve. It's a matter of a court order. It's a court thing, so we um, can't even comment on it. We can't, we can't deal with that, but um, let me just flesh out the, the, the story. So we, we have this painting that we put in our gallery, which shows a, a Mughal emperor um, it seats in the landscape, apparently narrating, you know, there's a scribe next to him writing, and we innocently thought, well, this must be Babur um, narrating his memoirs. It's a well-known trope in Mughal painting. And we were helped by the fact there is a little inscription on the tree saying Babo. So, Farsi, so, so, we, so, we, so we put it as, as, as that. And Ursula looked at it. She said, no, no, you got it wrong. It's Humayun because of the style of his turban. And he's always shown wearing this style of, of, of turban, particularly in paintings from the Shah Jahan period. It's kind of established iconography. And so I said, okay, Ursula, I'll believe you, but why does it say Babo on the tree? And she said, well, obviously somebody else has made the same mistake as you. Um, but it's a wonderful example of how you learn from a visiting scholar. And thank you for endorsing the method of the book. Because, yes, I mean, if we'd, if we'd done it ourselves, we have published that painting previously um, as Barbour. Yes, uh, we're very happy to, to have the record corrected in, in, in Masterpieces and to acknowledge our earlier mistake. There's a hand there. We have several hands. Who has the mic? The mic is power. Uh, do I uh, I'm uh, Dr. Kailash Gupta. I'm direct descendant of Seth Loonkaran Natani, who was Nagarset. Nagarset means he was the richest person of the city, designation given by the king. And uh, he was the, also one of the Navratna, means one of the nine ministers uh, from the Amir. And then, and he funded Jaipur city, Jaising second to establish Jaipur city. My question is, what was business he was doing so that he became so rich. Maybe I can do same now, possibly. <laughs> I was hoping you could tell us what he was doing, because at one point he was also minister, 
And there are, uh, at Amer, there are bowdies that, that the family had made. At Jaipur, they, you know, Natanyoka Bagh, I believe, is now what is Jemahel Hotel. So, you know, people who live in Jaipur have a lot of links with it. The Kotwali Thana at Choti Chopper is part of what was their family thing. So, can you, so, can you answer that question for us? Yeah, my hypothesis is, hypothesis uh, is, and I've been doing research as we talked yesterday. Can, we, can I share the people to contribute to our what we decided? It's not just keep it short, sir. We're running out of no, time. No, yeah. No, no, but I can disclose, no, what we... Of course you do. Okay. It's your project. <laughs> okay. Yesterday, I had a talk with Rimaji, and we have decided to write a book on St. Luke and Natani, because he has funded Jaipur City, and most other people don't know it. Okay. So, my hypothesis, and I have been collecting uh, from Archival, Bikaneer, etc., etc., some documents, and my hypothesis, he was in the textile trading. Textile trading. Yeah. So that will be good for us to follow up. We will definitely do that. Uh, there's, a, there's a hand at the back. He's raised it separately. Okay. And then there are a couple of hands at the back and one here. Yes, they will. We, we'll talk about it afterwards. My name is Justice Chauhan. One question that I have for you is... <clears throat> it's on. Just speak into the middle. Uh, we know there was a lot of influence of the Western art on the Mughal miniature. Do you find any influence of the Western art on Jaipur Kalam? Because Jaipur Kalam is quite different from the Mughal, although taken from the Mughal, but it has its own vocabulary right. and its own Thank you. Image. Thank you, Raghu. I'll try and answer that briefly. The Jaipur um, artists are extraordinarily versatile. Um, Mughal works that came into the collection uh, were kept in the Suratkana and were available to artists at Jaipur Court to, to study. And in fact, we have on display works that look Mughal but are actually Jaipuri. I mean, so, but, but yes, there are also responses to the West. Um, um, and some of it is filtered through Mughal art, some of it not. Um, I've looked particularly, I mentioned um, a, a, a painting, uh, an, a late 18th century painting um, from a, a Bhagavad Puran series, where I think that I can detect the influence of um, a German atlas there's a thing called the Grosser Atlas, a copy of which was given to Sawai Jai Singh, again, available to Jaipur artists to study. And the way in which cities are depicted in the Bhagavad Puran suggests to me a response to Western cartography of the 18th century. So there are some very specific influences like that. And of course, a, a greater Western influence comes much, much later, you know, in the second half of the, of, of, of the 19th century. There are more responses then to, 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 to Western imagery. But, um... So the mic has found its way there. But before I let you ask your question, I just want to share with all of you, when an object came into uh, the ruler or a member of the family, those objects would be, of course, admired, shared out in the sense of artisans would be allowed to see it, study it, and I think use it to a large extent in the Chhattisgarh Khana or in other things. So it became a way of understanding more of that. A bit like how Bikaneri Bhujia starts off from Farsan, which comes from Bhuj to Bikaner, at the tail end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, tail end of the 19th, actually, and becomes part and parcel of life there. Your question? Hi. Um, so I just wanted to ask a bit about the later works in the collection. So I'm currently researching the fall of the princely states in 1947 and the impact of that on uh, the arts patronage in princely states. I was wondering what the, uh, what's the latest works in your collection um, and does is the, is the rupture the end of amazing production of this in 1947, or is it earlier as the British kind of chip away at this stuff? No, we, we, we go up to, um, to the middle of the 20th century. Um, yeah, so everything that we have are things that were in, in the collection, are things that were gifted to the trust by either Man Singh II um, when he established the museum in 1959, or by his son and successor, Maharaja Bawani Singh in the early 1970s. Um, a, a lot of what we have um, in the collection, an important part that I didn't get a chance to mention is the photography collection. Um, so obviously the, the crown jewels there are the, the works of Maharaja Sawai Ram Singh himself, who was a pioneering photographer, but they, they go on. Um, we have photographs that go even into the period in the museum that go into the period when Man Singh was Raj Pramukh um, after the integration. After um, one of the images on the, on the loop is a photograph from a wedding album um, of Prem Kumari, 
Man Singh's daughter, which was in 1949, I think. Earlier, earlier, earlier. Is it 48? Yes, um, earlier. Which is a very exciting but, album, actually, because it, it, it's an enormous thing. Of course, it's, it's almost entirely male, um, except it's for the, in the earlier wedding albums as well. But in, in, in this one, the, the bride does at last appear, but so heavily veiled that you, you can't see her. But the reason that that's exciting is that I discovered um, that, uh, as I was looking at it, that... that uh, Henri Cartier-Bresson was known to have been in, in Jaipur at the time, and comparing the images, for a while I missed a heartbeat. I thought, my goodness, I've discovered a lost album by Henri Cartier-Bresson, because you can see his images online, and they're very, very similar to ours. And then I eventually realized, no, no, that's not what it is. Our photographer was standing next to him. You know, some of the views are so similar, they're just from a very slightly different angle. And there is one in which there is the back of Henri Cartier-Bresson. He stepped forward to take a photograph of the Barat, and our photographer has taken a photograph of him and of the Barat from, from behind. So that's uh, an extraordinary object. But that, that's one but of the latest. are you also going to mention the kind of art deco stuff? That yes, we have so National we have. Man Singh did a sort of a great makeover of the palaces, of the Rambag, um, and um, of, um, uh, what's the one in... Um, uh, the hunting lodge he built at Rambag. Um, no, Ramgar Lodge, Savai Madhupur. What are you thinking about? Um, here? I can't remember what it is. Anyway, we have he, he commissioned various um, uh, famous design companies to. But to, also to Jaipur House in Delhi. Yeah, a Jaipur House in Delhi. So he, 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 Man Singh was rather different from his predecessors. Until his reign, everybody assumed that Jaipur was the artistic hub of the world. You don't need to go outside. Everything is everything, and every design domain is available here. Man Singh had a much more global outlook and was sort of competing on a world stage. So he was commissioning um, London-based, Paris-based, New York-based designers to do interior design work for him. And we have the design drawings. He, he comes to power as a, as, a, as a child in 1922. He's interesting from 1931 onwards when he takes full ruling powers. But and the last things in the book are two wonderful paintings by Ram Gopal Vijayvargia, which are from about 1950. I think we have time for one more question, if any. We have several hands. All right, very quickly and very quickly. No, we don't have four minutes, they say. But anyway, let's not waste time. My name is Siddharth, and I have a new piece. Like I'm interested in textile research now because I'm a designer myself. Just speak into the center. Yeah, so my main concern is whenever I go to someone for asking a research question, they ask me, why do you want to research on a particular textile topic? So my thing is, how are these textiles relevant in the current time, especially when the pandemic has impacted things and the priorities have changed a lot. So how are these relevant in the current times and how will they be relevant in the future? So I think, uh, you know, in India, it is, it is the only country in the world where our textile heritage continues to be what it was almost 5,000 years ago. So it is really... It is really our uh, heritage, it is our legacy, and fortunately for us, we take it forward. Living in a city like Jaipur, you'll see the use of indigo, you'll see the use of block printing, you'll see the use of madar, you'll see the use of uh, tie and dye, leheria, and being used for day-to-day -day life purposes. And I'll just give an example, of course, in the book I talk about block printing, I talk about tie-dye textiles, I talk about the uh, varak printing, the gold and silver embroidery, but the most meaningful thing today is um, the, the tie-dye textiles, you know, and just as one example, I'm going to take that. From the time a child is born, you know, when a mother is gifted uh, a, a, a pila if a son is born and a pomcha if a daughter is born, when she gets married, she'll wear a red-colored uh, chundri and she wants to, uh, you know, go on the pyre in that because that means the husband is alive. And if you go to, you know, if she's a widow, then the color of that chundri will become black and uh, the red will become deeper. So it's so imbued into our consciousness and into our lives. Uh, I don't think that is going to go away in a hurry, you know. So it is, it is something which, which young designers have to take forward and carry it forward and understand the meaning and use it accordingly. And just to add to what Vandana just said, one of my personal realizations, you know, having looked at different aspects of history over the years, of being at the City Palace Museum is the realization that when we talk of Rajasthan, Jaipur's traditional 36 ateliers, Chhattis Karkhana. Uh, it's not a dead tradition. What you have in modern day Jaipur, you know, you have 
you still have the tambol khana. People are going out to have their after dinner pan if they like their pan. Uh, in in COVID, you can send for it. But textiles are there. Lights are still being used. The old horses have gone. But on the one hand, you have the polo. But on the other hand, you still have horses being used in weddings. So the tradition has been partly modified. and is still very rich and rajasthan is not just a unesco uh, jaipur is not just a unesco inscribed city it's also a craft creative city unesco inscribed and it's not craft in the singular many crafts so really that tradition is carrying on and being being changed and added to and modernized so the old thateras are maybe no longer making uh, the the uh, kalash for the top of a temple but they might be making door knobs Rimaji, if I can add one thing on the continuity of textile, you know, wherever people excelled in craft, it was always worked in clusters, and I think Jaipur did it beautifully. So Italy is one example where they did craft in clusters. So they had leather clusters, they had brocade clusters, they had weaving cluster uh, clusters, and similarly in uh, uh, Jaipur. there were the streets the streets were divided into what are what we call clusters or you know they were karkhanas and the specialization which happened still continues in those streets so we are so fortunate to be living in a country where we are part of this living heritage thank you for that vandana last question if any uh, if you hurry with the mic and then famous last words uh, my myself sultan jain from patrika Uh, i reside in sangne itself uh, there is very vibrant karkhanas uh, uh, of the sangne prints so have you seen this uh, present uh, sangne prints and uh, is it related to the the, the text uh, i mean textile you uh, quoted in your books uh, they are have changed have they changed very much or they are they still uh, continuation in it very similar we still see the sangne prints especially which have the strong mughal influence the finesse of the print it's still very much uh, existing and i think there has been a great resurgence in the some, last could you name some uh, some textile uh, called i mean uh, uh, embroidery or i'll be happy to discuss it I after think i think we can talk about it time, but yeah. uh, i just want to say the tradition continues as is and and, and, the, and the things uh, textile you have quoted uh, can we see somewhere the, the very it can see it can be observed i mean the the, the photo you showed earlier in the book and you can talk you to vandana afterwards okay. as soon as here over the session and uh, since uh, the buzzer has gone famous last words charles for this session at least yeah, well thank you thank you all for attending and look out for for further for further volumes in the in, in the series but meanwhile um get your copy of masterpiece get your copy get it signed so i don't know why i wrote my questions down because i can't see this far in any case panelists for this brilliant session i hope we've got you to want to come to the city palace museum if you're here for a short time come now but come another time we would love to show you more of this and we would love to do more books to bring more of these masterpieces to you thank you for being such a wonderful audience thank you enjoyed this download the mensa app and start your own live audio conversation